Welcome to the IndieWire Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And for today's episode, I got the chance to Zoom with one of my favorite directors, George Miller. He's got one of the most interesting and varied bodies of work of any filmmaker I can think of, ranging from visceral action flicks like the Mad Max movies and sophisticated adult dramas and comedies like Lorenzo's Oil and The Witches of Eastwick to children's films like the Babe and Happy Feet movies. His latest film, 3,000 Years of Longing, is right up there with his best work and is as profoundly philosophical as it is outlandish and entertaining. The movie follows an academic played by Tilda Swinton, who frees a genie played by Idris Elba, and then forms a relationship with him as he tells her stories. And the stories within the story allow Miller to both create some spectacular fairy tales and ponder the nature of storytelling itself and why we tell stories and what we want from them. It's a really incredible movie, and I was delighted to talk with George about it while he was on location shooting the next iteration in the Mad Max franchise, Furiosa. Here's our conversation. I once read an interview with you where you were quoted as saying, I think every film that you do is a kind of rehearsal for the next one. So I'm curious, how would you say Fury Road was a rehearsal for 3,000 Years of Longing? I think in a way, one was a holiday, at least in my head, from one to the other. So going from one film and then turning your attention on the next one, and in particular working on the two, having both in your head, one was, if you like, a a palate cleanser from one, from one to the other. Uh, very important that you're as objective and neutral as possible when you're assessing something, when you're directing. If you're watching, you know, I can never figure out how in the 80s a lot of directors were making films on cocaine because uh, they'd be euphoric all the time and everything would be good even the band, and then in the cold hard light of day, you have to sort of judge it. And that's one of the main things that you need to have focus in those moments where you're really the audience representative and trying to assess what's happening in front of you rather than thinking, oh, that was okay, and then later in the cutting room uh, realising, oh, it wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was. That used to happen to me. I'm sort of got enough scar tissue to try to avoid that now. So I would say with... Fury Road, in which very few words are spoken. I had to think in terms of something that is very, very verbal as we were moving into 3,000 years. One was shot outdoors in a a very isolated place uh, in southern Africa, and the other was shot in Sydney, mainly in studios. Uh, And to the extent that we were outdoors, it wasn't very far away from home. So they were very much the opposite in that way. And I had to sort of adjust myself from one to the other. It's just how technology is evolving, uh, particularly digital technology. I mean, it's always been the story in cinema, just like everything else. When COVID hit us, the film was delayed. We were to shoot in uh, Istanbul and in London, some, some of the scenes. We had all the actors and everything prepared, locations and everything, and then we couldn't travel uh, because of quarantine and COVID and so on. So it, it, that became m- much more uh, difficult, but we were able to effectively shoot in, in places that wherever we wanted to. We weren't allowed to shoot. No one can really shoot anything in Top Kapi Palace in Istanbul where the Ottoman uh, stories are set, even even the Turkish who who make a lot of historical drama based on that. There's a scene where you see a man riding a horse on the lawn of, uh, of Topkapi Palace. 
that is Top Cappy Palace. The only thing that's different is the lawn is in Sydney, um, and and the rest of it was we we photographed it. Copied. You can do all that sort of thing now, uh, as you know, very easy. A couple of decades ago, that was not available to us. So, yeah. Well, the visual effects in the movie are fantastic, and they work for me in the way that you want visual effects to work, which is that they create this sense of magic and wonder. And so often when I see visual effects-oriented movies, they feel oppressive to me, or they feel like they're all the same. A lot of the big tentpole movies feel very similar in terms of their effects. So I was curious how you approach the visual effects and how you kind of keep a grip on what you want them to be when you're presumably having, you know, to use hundreds of artists to implement this stuff? First of all, it's got to be very story-driven. What's the internal logic of the story as to how how a a gin that, for the purposes of this story, is made from the electromagnetic force, one of the four forces of the universe, how is he manifest in the the real world? And you have to work out uh, that logic in order to pass it on to the visual effects artists to talk about it. And providing the logic within the story is consistent, you have a chance of it being persuasive. And and that applies to everything, no matter what film you do. It's not just a surface design, oh, that's a cool design, without any uh, organising ideas or underpinnings that give it a logic within the story. So that's the approach. I think it applies to to everything you do in a film, a, a costume, uh, it's not just a matter of fancy. Um, there's there's one thing, um, like for for instance, in detail, the, the that horse I talked about, that Prince Mustafa is riding. Some people might notice that its mane was pink, except for fairy stories or or children's toys. I've never seen a pink mane on a horse in a film, but that's what they did have. Their paintings of horses from the time, usually some important person riding a horse with a pink mane. So we used a pink mane. It, it's not just, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if it had a pink mane? If you can apply that to virtually everything you, you do, that's where ultimately if you do that uh, assiduously enough, the audience will have a sense that that's the case. Well, and in terms of those underlying ideas that drive everything, what was it that you initially responded to in the source material that want, made you want to make this film in the first place? I read the A.S. Byatt story, and two things were really interesting. First of all, it felt, something about it felt authentic. She had an anthology of fairy tales, but something about this one. She'd written a number of fairy tales, well-crafted, but this was a novella that she'd written. And it felt very, very true. That's the first thing. And, and to explain it, when I said to her, I sat down with her, I said, we'd really like to, you know, the rights to this story. She said, why this story and not the other ones? And I said, because it felt something about it was very true. And she says, that's because it is. Everything in the story is true except for the djinn. She was the narratologist who went to Istanbul for a conference. The events that happened there were essentially as she described. And the characters uh, that she she met in, in modern-day Istanbul have equivalent. She acknowledges uh, one of them in the book. So that's one thing. The most important thing was that it was a story relatively contained. After all, at its core, it's a conversation for about just over an hour of 
two people in a hotel room, but it spans 3,000 years. It also deals with that basic question of what is real and what is not. What is desire and what is contentment? What is love? How do you define love? What's, what are the gestures that make it clear to you that there is love? One of the characters uh, is mortal and the other character can live indefinitely. And all of these things, they, you know, what is consistent about us in terms of what our narratives, what's the interaction, as, they, as she says in, in the conference, what's the connection between mythos and science? And she explains, mythos is what we knew back then, science is what we know so far. They are part of a continuum. All of those things were inherent in the story. So for me, the story just wouldn't let me go. Since I read it, we kept on working on it, and then eventually it got to the point where we could make it. So that's certainly what was in the story. I, Like you, like anybody else, I have, my head is full of stories, all competing in some Darwinian way as to which ones will grab the attention. And that's definitely uh, one that stuck for me. And you mentioned that it's essentially a lot of it is two people in this room. And so obviously that makes casting even more important here than on a typical movie, you know, so much is riding on your two leads. So tell me a little bit about how you came to decide on Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton and what the process was like, what your initial conversations with them were like. I had the screenplay almost finished. I met them without having thought too much about casting. In the first instance, I was at the Cannes Film Festival, 2016 it was, I knew Bong Joon-ho, who happened to be sitting at dinner, and he had just done a film, Okja, with, uh, with Tilda. You know, all I knew about Tilda was all the various characters she played. She had just played, I think, three characters, one of which was an old man and whatever. So there's no way of really getting to know who Tilda was unadorned other than to meet her in person. And she was astonishing as a, as, as a person. She just blew me away. And it wasn't this sort of natural practice charm that people have. It's who she is, like endlessly curious, extremely uh, graceful in her approach to other people, incredibly warm, uh, all of that sort of stuff. And I thought, holy cow, she'd be great as Alethea. All of the things I had of her of first impression, apart from her knowledge of her, her skill uh, and talent as an actor, were proved to be true when we worked together, by the way. I finally finished the screenplay we, when we finished, and we said, would you like to do it? And she said, yes. So then I was in, in search of the gin. And at the same year that we happened to be, the year before or something, we happened to be at the BAFTAs where Idris Elba was there. And again, I'd seen him in movies, but it just so happened, it just walking out, there was a, a five-minute conversation with my partner, Louise Seal, who is the wife of Johnny Seal, the cameraman. Margie and Louise wanted to meet Idris. We were talking and talking, and the conversation went on. And the moment I met him, the same thing. He had, obviously, someone of great charisma, but it was there, evident, in person. And I thought, God, that would work so well with the two of them. He read the screenplay and he really uh, responded to it. The first conversation we had, we were talking, we were talking, and he said, look, George, I've got to go. I'm in a car. I'm at the airport. I'll call you back as soon as I can. Before he called back, I suddenly, my phone pinged, and there was a photograph of Idris and Tilda 
on the front lawn of Tilda's farm in Scotland. He was flying to Loch Ness where he was DJing near the farm where Tilda was. He went there. I think they might have known each other. I'm not sure. But they sat and took a photograph. I, I thought this is just, uh, this is going to be great. And it, I have to say it was. They were just wonderful to work with. Well, and I know from what I've read about some of your other films that you have a very intense and comprehensive rehearsal process. You do a lot of really deep work with the actors before you ever get to shooting. What was that like with Idris and Tilda in this movie? What kind of work did the three of you do in the time leading up to shooting? Pre-COVID, we all met in London around a table for a week, probably 18 months before the shoot. We were to shoot... Uh, and the film was delayed because of COVID. There was a lot of Zooming, chat in general, as well as the specifics of the text and the characters. And then COVID happened, and everybody who came into Australia had to quarantine uh, for two weeks in a hotel or an apartment, and they both had to do that. Those two weeks, when they each did that, we would use uh, every day when we could to do exactly the same, except we are talking like you and I are. That was very useful. And then when we got on the set, we you know, would block things out on the set and so on. And I think that's the way it should be done. They were very up for it. They were, they're both what I call filmmaking actors. They both have a, they're not only there to play the role, they're there to get the film made. So they're very, very collaborative. They understand what's required from the crew and so on. It's not just... I was spending my time in my trailer. I'll come out and do my thing when I'm ready. They would be there, which I have to say, I've, I've found very privileged to work with some very fine actors. And those that usually uh, have enduring careers and do consistently do fine work have that filmmaking quality. The first I ever encountered like that was Jack Nicholson on Witches of Eastwick way back in the 80s. I remember he said to me, I just want you to know one thing. Uh, I am here not only to play the character, but I'm here to do whatever I can to get the film made. Now, they were easy words, but in practice, during a, quite a dysfunctional production, he was absolutely true to his word. He would turn up on his days off to read lines to the other actors. When there was sort of turmoil within the studio and the producers, he'd be coaching me and being the honest broker between... He'd already had some difficulty with the studio because he'd just done The Shining, which went... I think it was shot for 18 months. He was only meant to be there for six months. And they promised that they would compensate him, both done at Warner Brothers, uh, for that in one way. And as it turned out, I don't think it quite happened. So he really gave them a little bit of a hard time and they've finally acquiesced. But he was there when he saw that there was trouble to get the film made. That's the first time I encountered that. And it's incredibly impressive because it means that they really understand the collective process. They're usually the people who have either worked on low-budget films or worked in the theatre. And, and Tilda and Idris were both very much of those kind of people. And I think that's why directors who work with Tilda just can't get enough. And it's the same with Idris, who's, who's directed at least one film. He has a very broad understanding of the process and I think he's very soon thinking of directing another one. He's a very broad thinker, both of them, and that's in the thick of making a film is a really great asset. Well, and you talk about people who are committed to the film. You've got your cinematographer, John Seal, here, who 
you know, as I understand it, more or less retired over 10 years ago, but he keeps coming back to work for you. <laughs> so uh, how do you keep getting him back? And uh, what is it about that relationship that you always want him now? Johnny, um, he turned 70 on uh, Fury Road and he just turned 80. When we did uh, 3,000 years, he was coming up to 80. But he was one of the great Australian operator uh, cinematographers. He's um, a very funny guy, a great raconteur, but the way he deals with the crew, the kind of graceful discipline that happens on the crew was a wonderful thing to behold. We've worked together on Lorenzo's Oil uh, two decades before. I think the best way to say it is that you'd be walking around the set, you know what shots you'd want to do. You'd be blocking it out. You know, I don't use a viewfinder. Just just by the way I would bend down or just do this, he would know exactly what was in my mind. It was almost through body language. And I walk over to the monitor and there was the shot. I'd sort of been vaguely thinking of in my head, already there. So it's, it's a whole bunch of things. What happened with Johnny is he definitely, he's a big sailor. He built his own boat. He wanted to do a trip on Fury Road where when he first met his wife, Louise, he was going to go off to uh, up the coast of Australia on the Great Barrier Reef. And I said, Johnny, would you do this one more film? He did Fury Road. And then when we went to do, you know, six or whatever, eight years later, I said, would you just come back for one more? And uh, I said, it's all set in Sydney. That We're travelling to Istanbul and London for, for about a week each, but mostly it's done in Sydney. As it turned out with COVID, it was all done in Sydney and he was very happy to do it. I did ask him to do Furiosa uh, during that and he came to me one day and he said, look, Louise and I had a long talk and we are going to do that trip up the coast of Australia, so I can't do it with you. And I said, Johnny, I, I, when I did ask him, I said, I don't expect you to do it, but it's there if you want it. And he said, no, we're going to take the trip. Well, and I wanted to ask about one other collaborator, key collaborator here, because you're working again with uh, Margaret Sixel, who won a well-deserved Oscar for Fury Road and is also your wife. Um, so, you know, a, a movie like this, I feel like, again, when you've got two people in a room for so much of it, it's kind of deceptively simple. I mean, it, it looks easy, but I would suspect that it's very tricky getting those rhythms and the pacing right. So talk a little bit about how the movie evolved in the editing room and how the two of you worked together on this film. As I said before, you need to be dispassionate when you're assessing something as much as you can. Those fine calibrations that you make when you're looking at something in a very granular way. I mean, uh, you need that ability and at the same time, and this is the paradox, you need to be able to sort of zoom out and look at it in terms of the entirety of the film that you think is there. And that's something, it's almost instantaneous that you need to do. And she has that ability. There are some that can do the granule and there's some that have the overview, very few people who can do that. And also it's a question of taste and it's also uh, a kind of fearlessness to actually say, no, that doesn't work for this reason or that doesn't fit for this reason. Or it's one thing to actually to point out problems. It's another thing to find the solution, the elegant solution to the problem. And somehow there's like, and I learned this on Fury Road, which is a film she didn't want to do. I'd say, look, there's something not working there. Maybe we should try this or that. And she'd suddenly say, there's something I want to try. And I knew at that moment I should 
get up and leave the editing room and leave her to her own space to do it. And then I'd come back and I'd see it. And I'd say, why the hell didn't I see that? That happened time and time again. And I kept saying to her, that's very, very rare. This particularly, even though it's different than Fury Road, was something that she really excelled. In terms of the approach to the film, uh, Indra said something in our first conversation when we spoke about that film when he was in the, in the car taking him to the airport. He said, George, it would be really great to shoot all the stories that the gin says before I meet, meet Tilda in the hotel room. And it was one, again, it was one of those moments when I thought to myself, yes, of course, it's the only way to do it. So as it timed out, we're shooting up to Christmas. We finished all the stories beforehand, Christmas, after Christmas, Tilda arrived in Australia, quarantine, and we shot the hotel sequences last. It was a really good way to work. That was very, very helpful. So he had those under his belt and, and had authority over those stories when he's telling it. Oh, the other thing he said... I don't want to do those narrations in a studio behind a little desk with a microphone. I would like to tell them to Tilda in the room. Even if you don't shoot them, I want to be telling them. And we, we shot them uh, anyway. We had the cameras. That was a way to make it coherent because he's not telling the audience. He's telling Alethea. Well, you know, I think that probably sort of seeps into the DNA of the movie in a way that really works on the audience because for me... I felt like the film really cast a spell on me. And I think that maybe Idris was, was on to something with taking that approach because I think that's part of why the movie has the kind of magical effect it has. That's a really good, good example, though, of a filmmaking actor, not just thinking of himself, but of the whole film. Definitely, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really terrific movie, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it, George, and I hope, hope everything is going well on Furiosa. I can't wait to see that one either. Thanks so much, Jim. It's very nice to talk.